Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah to chapter 13. As we pick up today in verse 4. If you remember from last week, chapters 12 to 14 are all about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord does not refer to a 24-hour period. It's a thousand years long. How can a day be a thousand years? Well, that's Psalm 90, verse 4, and 2 Peter 3, 8. When you look at an end times prophecy, a day is to the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. It begins with the rapture and the resurrection, then the seven-year tribulation period, then the millennial kingdom on earth, and terminates at the new heavens and the new earth. Well, let me ask this. Is everything from chapter 12, verse 1, to the end of chapter 14 in chronological order? The answer is no. It jumps around all over the place. Why would it do that? Study to show yourself approved. I'm still looking for the verse that says glance at to show yourself approved, but I haven't found it yet. So, as we pick up in chapter 13, verse 4, it's all about the fact that false prophets are going to cease. False prophets are going to cease. But it occurred to me, as I was thinking about this a few minutes ago, we haven't talked about when does that happen. So open up to the book of 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 3 talks about the day of the Lord. We said 2 Peter 3, 8 is one of those verses that talks about a day as Lord is a thousand years, and that's it, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Does that happen at the beginning of the day of the Lord or the end? It's at the end. So in those few verses, we go from the beginning to the end, all the way across the thousand years. Now look at chapter 2 of 2 Peter, just a page before. Verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So Peter says there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be false teachers. But Zechariah 13 says there won't be. Is that a conflict in the scriptures? Or do we need to further refine the time period? Mm. Turn back to the book of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Where Messiah talks about the end times and its signs and the things that are going to occur. He says in verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's in the day of the Lord. But in which part? That's in the tribulation period. So now, turn back to Zechariah 12, or 13, verse 4. And we know that the time period being discussed when there will be no more false prophets is after the tribulation period during the millennial kingdom. Let's read that verse 4. It shall be in that day. What day? 
day of the Lord, but it didn't tell us exactly when. Now we know it's after the tribulation period. That every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They'll not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. Why will false prophets stop? Is it because they suddenly realize that, hey, this is wrong, I need to be better? What's that? Ah, go to Revelation chapter 20. What happens at the end of the tribulation period? Somebody gets bound and hidden away. Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Where did the false prophecies come from? Who is the father of all lies? Satan, Satan's bound away. False prophets cease. Knowing the time period now, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. Meaning what? They're going to stop. They realize that if they give a false prophecy, that would be a bad thing. They're not motivated by Satan anymore, so they realize this has got to end says they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. What does a robe of coarse hair have to do with anything? That was the robe of the prophets. It's how they identified Elijah. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. The prophets dressed in that rough, uncomfortable robe and clothing as a symbol of piety showing that they were putting the word of God above their earthly needs and desires Mark chapter 1 verse 6 is about John the Baptist and it says in verse 6 now John was clothed with camels here how many of you would put on a camel's hair garment just for the fun of it the answer is no they're not comfortable they're very coarse, very rough, very uncomfortable. So it was done as a symbol of piety. So if we go back to Zechariah 13 verse 4, they're not going to pretend to be something they're not. They're not going to put on robes that cry piety when they are in fact anything but. Verse 5, but he will say, I am no prophet. So he'll tell people right up front, don't come to me for prophecies. I'm not a prophet. I'm a farmer. A man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Verse 6. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, these which I was wounded in the house of my friends. How many people have been told that's about Messiah? It's not. It's about the false prophets. Messiah was not a false prophet. So different translations trying to make it sound like it's Messiah because he was pierced on the tree. But it's talking here, if you go back to verse 3, 
shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies and his father and mother who begot him will say to him, he shall not live because you spoke in lies the name of the Lord and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. So it's talking about the false prophets who get wounded whenever they try and prophesy falsely because everybody realizes at that point that they're just false and they need to hush up. Does sound kind of like Messiah though because he was pierced, but well, he wasn't the only one that ever got pierced. To be honest, I used to think that was about Messiah because that's what I've been told. But then you put it in context, you realize, yeah, it's not. But now when we come to verse 7, we are going to talk about Messiah. Why the transition between the false prophets no longer prophesy falsely, and now we turn our attention to Messiah. Doesn't that seem rather abrupt? Or did Messiah prophesy truthfully? So it's time to stop listening to the false prophets. It's time to listen to the true prophet. Was Messiah a prophet or wasn't he? You say yes. How do we know? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. God gives us a test. And also prophesies Messiah's coming back in Deuteronomy 18. Which isn't a shock. Where's the first prophecy of Messiah's coming? That's back in Genesis 3. So in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, as soon as y'all get there, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. That is referring to Messiah. So if God calls him a prophet, what should we call him? A prophet. It says, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. Or it said to me, what they've spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. So shouldn't there be something in the New Testament that says Messiah speaks the words that God gives him to speak? That's in John chapter 14. So let's go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verses 23 and 24. Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but whose? But the Father's who sent me. Ties it right back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Hmm. This is a stumbling block for many Jewish people. Why? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. The anti-missionaries approach Jewish people this way who've expressed faith in Messiah. 
They say you believe in a false prophet. Can a false prophet be the Messiah? Well, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot and one tittle by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And now look at the Jewish believer and say, have heaven and earth passed away? No. Doesn't the church teach you that God's commandments have been abolished? Yes. Then these words didn't come to pass, did they? Where's the flaw in their argument? The law hasn't passed away. So they use the scripture to set the stage and then use what the church teaches to make their point. That's why we have to be careful to separate doctrine from Bible. They say, well, if that's not enough, go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Verses 39 and 40. And here's where they drive the nail in the coffin for so many young Jewish believers and get them to turn away from Messiah. Matthew 12, 39. But he answered and said to me, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's a prophecy. Then they say, Stick up three fingers. The church teaches he died on Friday, then you got Saturday, then you got Sunday. How many nights are in between? Two, he failed another test, another false prophecy. You put your faith in a false prophet. And what's the problem with that argument? He didn't die on Friday, he died on Thursday. Well, between Thursday and Sunday, you got three days and three nights. That's why I keep harping on, we have to make sure we have our facts straight as we present it. Hasn't been too long since I was in a little restaurant having breakfast one morning after taking the trash, and a guy came up and said, can I sit with you? He was a pastor from another church, and he said, you're a rabbi, aren't you? And I said, well, I don't call myself that, but okay. He said, why don't Jewish people believe in Jesus? It really opens the door. First response is because you teach them he's not the Messiah. You want to see preacher's eyes keep it? What do you mean? Do you teach he was crucified on Friday and rose on Sunday? Well, yes. Are there three days and three nights? No. So what you're teaching him is he's a false prophet. So I never thought about that. We have to think about it. Which takes precedence? Doctrine or Bible? In most churches, it's doctrine. Where doctrine conflicts with the Bible, doctrine takes precedent. What's wrong with that? Doctrine's man-made. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Verse 7. So we know better. We've got to make sure that the world gets taught better. Matthew 15, verse 7, hypocrites. Why is he calling hypocrites? 
He's just told them that your traditions, your doctrine contradicts the scriptures. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips and their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. If your doctrine is based on the commandments of men what does the Lord himself say with his own lips? They're hypocrites and their worship is in vain. So what should our doctrine be based on? That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. You're absolutely right. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. All scripture, every scripture is God-breathed. It's what came out of God's own lips. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what must our doctrine be based upon to be pleasing to God? The scriptures, the words that came out of his mouth. Which words that came out of his mouth? That's Matthew 4.4. 4. Go back to Matthew 4.4. 4. I don't know how I got in this soapbox, but I'll get off in a minute. Matthew 4.4. 4. But he, that's Messiah, answered, that's to Satan, and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This week I have listened to preacher after preacher say, Well, well, yeah, okay, okay, but you have to understand the law is divided into Civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. And only the moral law continues. The rest of it went away. Those other words spoken by God are gone. How does that mesh with what Messiah said in Matthew 4, 4 and Matthew 5, 18? If you take out whole commandments when Messiah said not a jot or a tittle, not a letter or a piece of a letter will be taken from the law. What did you make him? A false prophet. What does the scripture say about false prophets? Are they sent by God? No. So let's get back on topic. Okay. Zechariah chapter 13. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The shepherds of Israel were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Is that what we're talking about? No, he doesn't say the shepherds. He says my shepherd. Turn back to the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Starting verse 1. Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for as she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What time period is that talking about? 
talking about the Messianic Kingdom, Messiah, having been crucified for the sins of the people. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make a straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Who is that referring to? That's John the Baptist. So we can tell that this is all about Messiah. And how is Messiah referred to in these chapters? Look at chapter 42, verse 1. Still talking about Messiah. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. What happened at the baptism of Messiah? The dove descended from heaven. It was the Holy Spirit descending upon him. It bring forth justice to the Gentiles. But what's he called in chapter 42, verse 1? My servant. My servant. The same words used here in Zechariah 13, verse 7. My shepherd is my servant. In Ezekiel 43, God talked about, I will send myself as the shepherd. Let's look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Starting in verse 10. We'll just do the short version. Thus, whoops, I have a couple of questions out of your comments. Let's see. Let me see if I understand this question. It's about Deuteronomy 18. So keep a finger in Ezekiel 34. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. Sorry I didn't see it earlier. It says, His month is capitalized. What is it in the Hebrew? In Deuteronomy 18, 18. I don't see I the word. He's referring to his mouth. Oh, he's talking about his mouth. The word for mouth in Hebrew is pay. And the word his no, is capitalized. I'm sorry, Wayne. Go uh, ahead, his Sam. His mouth, you, we were talking about um, that this is uh, Messiah versus the false prophet. And in the English, the he is capitalized. And I just wanted to know how in the Hebrew do they show that the he or in his mouth is capitalized, showing that it has to do with God and Messiah. Gotcha. That's in the Hebrew, there are no capital letters. When you see in an English Bible a capital letter from the Hebrew, the translators or publisher decided to capitalize it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So back to Ezekiel 34, verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against these shepherds. That's the prophets, priests, and kings that have led Israel astray. And I require my flock at their hand. I will, I will cause them to cease feeding the shepherds. The, I'm sorry, feeding the sheep. And the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. 
For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. So the Lord says what? He's going to be the shepherd. And that is the shepherd that we're referring to over here in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. So let's go back there. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? It's an end times. Strike the shepherd. That's the crucifixion. That happened 2,000 years ago. But in the Lord's eyes, that's when the time of the end began, was 2,000 years ago. And the sheep will be scattered, then I'll turn my hand against the little ones. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Messiah tells us specifically this is about him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Yeshua said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So who is Messiah referring to here as the shepherd himself? Who is he referring to as the sheep? The disciples. What did the disciples do when Messiah was arrested? They split. They ran. All except for a couple. Peter said, nope, I'm going. But when Peter got to the place where Messiah was being tried, what did he do? Three times. Tonight and three times. Wait. Yes. There was, a, there was something about... You just said about turning the hands against the little ones. What exactly is, is that mean? Oh, we haven't got there yet. Hang on. Oh, sorry. It's coming. Thank you. Yeah, Matthew chapter 26, verse 55. In that hour, Yeshua said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So that's the scattering of the sheep from the prophecy. Let's go to the book of Mark. Chapter 14. Just another account. I want you to see it again. Because more than one of the gospel writers mentions it. Verse 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. Then to John chapter 16. A day before, if you had told the, uh, the disciples that they were all going to flee when Messiah was arrested, what would they all have said? No. Uh-uh, no, can't happen. But 
circumstances intervened. So in John chapter 16, let's go to verse 25 and go to 33. And see if we can answer Richard's question. So John chapter 16, starting in verse 25. It says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we're sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Yeshua answered them, Do you now believe? The way verse 31 is written, Yeshua answered them, Do you now believe? That tells you what the underlying language is. In English, if I say, I answered him, what did he do? He asked a question. That's not what the word means in Hebrew. It just means it's Messiah's return, his turn to speak. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So let's go back to Jeremiah, I'm sorry, to Zechariah 13. Verse 7, it ends with, Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Israel was going to get scattered after the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. Did that happen? Forty years later, was the temple destroyed? Were the Jewish people dispersed throughout the world? And, now, and so the, for the last 2,000 years, they've had peace in the world, right? No one's just, no, it's not like that. If you read Jewish history, the, the Jewish people have been chased from country to country to country, always with their lives at risk. It's, it's really heartbreaking to read the history of what's happened through Europe. They would go to a country like Spain, they would get settled, they would get prosperous, then Spain would expel them. What year did Spain expel all the Jews? 1492. When did Columbus sail to the United States? 1492. He was Jewish, as were the people on his boats. They were being cast out of Spain. They needed a place to go, so they came looking for a new world. Yes, he was sent by the king and queen to go find spices and things, but they were looking for a place where they could find safety. Have you seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? The pogroms, the inquisitions. The inquisition was more than a thousand years. If you kept Shabbat, they put you to death. If you refused to eat pig, they put you to death. The children of Israel have been chased by the sword for the last 2,000 years. That's what chapter 13, verse 7 ends with.
as we come to verse 8, we come to the time of the tribulation period. For 2,000 years, what percentage of the Jewish people have become believers in Messiah? Not a big percentage, right? Why? Didn't the church show them great love and kindness and mercy? No, they put him to death at every turn. The Inquisition lasted a thousand years. Even today, you will find rabbis on YouTube talking to the Jewish world and say, let me tell you about Christianity. They're going to come and tell you that you can break all of God's commandments and he'll love you for it. Isn't that what we've experienced over the last 4,000 years, people? And everybody will just laugh and say, yeah, okay, we understand that. So verse 8, we come to the time of the tribulation period. This is the time when God and the children of Israel are going to have a come to Jesus meeting. You know that old phrase? Yeah. And how will the children of Israel react? They're going to come to God in droves and multitudes. Why? Why? Because the gospel is going to be presented correctly. The 144,000 are not going to come. And let me tell you about this new God who overthrew the God of the Old Testament and lets you now do any kind of sin you like and he loves you for it. It's not going to be like that. They're going to say the same God who created the heavens and the earth is still God. His commandments are still his commandments. Messiah didn't come to bring us a new religion. What did he come to do? He came to correct the false teachings, right? To put us on the right path, to bring us back to God. Uh. So, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. Now that sounds bad. Because it is. If you think back to the Holocaust, a third of the Jewish people perished. This is two-thirds. That's worse. Go back to Daniel chapter 12. It's not just a New Testament concept. Daniel chapter 12. Verse 1. At that time is a reference to the tribulation period. Michael, Michael, who is like God. This is the archangel who stands watch over Israel. Shall stand up. That doesn't mean he's been asleep. It means it's time that God says, go deliver them. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time. So the Holocaust was horrible. Absolutely horrible. But it doesn't hold a candle to what's going to happen in the tribulation period. What do we call that time in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7? The time of Jacob's trouble. Notice it's not called the time of Israel's trouble. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob refers to unrepentant Israel. Hmm. 
At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone is found written in the book. What book? The book of life. So those who've come to faith will be delivered. So two-thirds will die. One-third will get saved and will survive. So verse 8, back in Zechariah 13, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. Was fire a picture of in prophecy always? Judgment. How many years of judgment is the tribulation period? Seven years. It says we'll refine them as silver is refined. How many times you put silver through the fire to refine it, they say? Seven times. So is this a prophecy of the seven-year tribulation period? The answer is absolutely. What about all those preachers out there, including Messianic rabbis, who say the tribulation period is only three and a half years long? Hmm. They say the first three and a half years are fine. Really? How many people die? At least two billion people in the first? Yeah, that's fine. No, it's not fine. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. How do you test gold? What are you looking for? It's purity. How pure is it? They will call on my name and I will answer them. Now, 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 Proverbs 28, 9, those who turn their ear away from hearing the law, even their prayers an abomination. So what does this say? They'll call on my name and I'll answer them. They have repented. They have turned back to God. What caused them to do that? What did they see during the tribulation period? Did they see the truth that God is God and that the Bible is true, every word of it, and it's going to come to pass just as he said? They'll call on my name and I'll answer them. I will say, this is my people. What is that in Hebrew? Ami. Back in the prophets, there was the time that he called them lo ami, not my people. That was before they repented. After they repent, it's ami, my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. What does that mean? And each one will say, of the third that remains, how many get saved? 100%, each and every one. Is this the only place we can find that in Scripture? No, go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. How many of you have heard preachers say that you don't need to teach the Jews about Yeshua. They're saved a different way. But what does Messiah say in John 14, 6? One way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And look at Jeremiah 31, 31. The two before method doesn't work. You may want to slap people silly, but you can't do that. But people are all the time telling me, Wayne, the commandments were only for the Jewish people. Because in Exodus 20, it says, talk to the children of Israel. Well, look at the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 30. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. 
Does it say I'm making a new covenant with the church? It does not. So what about Gentile believers? How did they get into the covenant? They're grafted in, Romans chapter 11. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, there was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. What does Paul call him in Ephesians 2? Not the house of Israel, he uses the phrase the commonwealth of Israel. As he talks about the Gentiles being grafted in, but it's the same thing. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law, the Hebrew word is Torah, his commandments, statutes, and judgments in their minds and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. For at least them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. When do these verses come to pass? In the kingdom, it's at the same time that Zechariah 13 is fulfilled, and each one will say, He is my God. That's what we're talking about here. And we also read about it in Isaiah chapter 4. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 4. Does God want anyone to suffer and die? No. What does He want them to do? Repent and be saved. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem. This is once the tribulation period is over. They're coming into the kingdom. Will be called holy. What's that word in Hebrew? Holy. What's that? Kadosh. Kadosh. In the New Testament, what is that equivalent word? Hagios. Revelation 14, 12 describes the Hagios, the saints, as what? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of our Messiah, Yeshua. It says, everyone who's recorded among the living in Jerusalem, what happened to the unsaved? They died at the end of the tribulation period. Verse 4 says, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning. When did that take place? That's the tribulation period. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. What did that indicate in the wilderness? God's presence. For over all the glory there will be a covering. A chuppah. What's a chuppah? Marriage canopy. Who dwells under the marriage canopy? The bridegroom and the bride. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat. The reference to the tabernacle points us straight to the Messianic kingdom, doesn't it? When the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled. So let us go back to Zechariah 13 and bring 13 to a close. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, there's a prophecy of 77-year periods. Why do I put it that way, 77-year periods? Because they're not 70 set of consecutive years, not 490 consecutive years. There's gaps in between. But each group of seven is years one through six and a Sabbath year.
which tells us that the 70th week of Daniel, of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, is also a group of seven that begins years one through six and ends with a Sabbath year. Hmm. That 70th week of Daniel is the tribulation period. How does that 70th week begin according to Daniel 9.27? With confirming of a covenant, confirming a seven-year covenant that the false Messiah will break. So let's go to chapter 14, verse 1. Oh, actually, I want one more verse associated with Zechariah. Let's go to 1 Peter, chapter 1. I want to get ahead of myself. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Comes right for 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Because it referenced in that ending of Zechariah 13 about testing as gold is tested. And Peter references that here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. We'll start in verse 6 for context. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That, meaning here's the reason for the trials and the tribulations, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. When is Messiah revealed to the world? That's at the second coming. So what is God allowing the testing for? To see whether our faith is genuine. Today, to profess faith in Messiah, that's easy, right? Yeah, your family may make fun of you. Your friends may say, oh, gee, look at what you're missing out on. But it's really pretty easy. In the tribulation period, to be a believer is to put your very life on the line. Messiah is going to shield the 144,000, but the rest, they're going to get beheaded left and right. Well, each person only once, but you know what I mean. False Messiah will behead all the believers he can get his hands on. Then we'll see whose faith is real and whose is not. Okay, now Zechariah chapter 14 verse 1 begins with behold. Behold in Hebrew is hine. Hine. It means something very important is coming that God doesn't want us to miss. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. I mean, it's at hand. It's very near. So what? We need to be what? Ready. That's the story of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Five were ready, five were not. The Lord's warning us, it's coming, it's coming. Be ready, be ready. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. 
The city shall be taken, the house is rifled, the women ravished, half the city should go into captivity, but the remnant of the people should not be cut off from this city. Here I need to make a little Ibex trail. Jewish theology says this is about the battle of Gog and Magog. That Gog and Magog is the final battle that ends the tribulation period. And it's not. So why does Jewish theology teach that the battle of Gog and Magog is the end of the tribulation period? Because they don't believe in Revelation and in Messiah and Revelation is the one that teaches about Armageddon so they have to ignore that. And yet, even they can see the huge battle that takes place right before the Messianic Kingdom. So they got to explain it somehow. So they put the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the tribulation period. And I want us to take a moment and look and see why we disagree. Okay, so I'm going to talk about, here's the major differences or contrast between the battle of Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the battle of Armageddon from Revelation chapter 16 and as described here in Zechariah. First, most respected Bible prophecy scholars today put the timing of Gog and Magog in the first half of the tribulation period, and so do I. And I've told you why. Because at the battle of Gog and Magog, all Israel gets saved. There are many teachers who say Gog and Magog happens before the rapture, and I go, uh-uh. If all Israel got saved before the rapture, where would all Israel be when the rapture happens? taken to heaven, they wouldn't be here for the time of Jacob's trouble. So, that's not right. I put it three years into the tribulation period, which gives them five months to study the New Testament, which they haven't been studying most of their lives, right? And find out that Messiah said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, what do you do? Run. Run. So they need time to learn that that's what they're supposed to do. Then the abomination desolation goes up 30 days before the midpoint. That's in Daniel chapter 12. And that's their sign to flee to Petra. How many of you have been to Petra? Many of you have. From Israel, today, you take a bus. And you have to stop overnight at a hotel because you can't get all the way to Petra on a bus in one day. It's too far. So imagine... You have to walk it. Is that a day's journey? Three days journey? No, you need a month to get there. If a bus can't get there at 60 miles an hour in a day, you're not going to walk it in a day. You're not that fast, I know. Okay. So Armageddon is at the very end of the seven-year tribulation period, so that's enough for me to say they're not the same battle. But there's more than that. Number two... In Ezekiel 38, it tells us who the main combatants are, and it's Russia, Iran, and Turkey, as well as the Muslim allies that do not share a border with Israel. Is that the whole world? No. But at the Battle of Armageddon, all nations, what do we see in verse 2? All nations come against Jerusalem. So it's not Russia, Iran, and Turkey with their Muslim allies that don't share a border with Israel. The combatants are different. So the timing is different. The combatants are different. 
Number three, the Battle of Gog and Magog, the attack from which direction? From the north. At the Battle of Armageddon, they attack from all sides. All sides. Number four, it tells us in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the purpose of the Battle of Gog and Magog is to take a spoil. At the Battle of Armageddon is to eliminate Israel in its entirety. What's that Muslim chant? From the river to the sea? What do they mean? They mean not a single Jewish person left. Why do they want to wipe out the Jewish people so badly? To keep Messiah Messiah from coming. That's right. Number five. Russia leads the coalition of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. The false Messiah leads the armies of the world at the Battle of Armageddon. So the leader is different. Number six, after Gog and Magog, they bury the bodies, right, in the valley of Hamon Gog. After the battle of Armageddon, what happens to the bodies? The birds and animals eat them. That's right, they're left out. They're not buried. Number seven, the weapons of Ezekiel 38 and 39 are used for fuel for seven years. Nothing written about that, about the Battle of Armageddon, is there? After the Battle of Armageddon, we enter into the Millennial Kingdom, and the Lord will provide what we need. There's a bunch more here, but I think that's sufficient. So there is a time period coming where there are three wars in the tribulation period. There's the Psalm 83 war at the very beginning, Gog and Magog about three years in, and Armageddon at the end. So let's go back to verse 1 and break this down. Number 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. The day of the Lord. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Does Isaiah talk about the day of the Lord? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Isaiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 10. Oops, I have a question from Go to Meeting Land. Let's see what it is. Is Zechariah 14.1 in reference to the nation of Israel? You bet it is. Yep. Isaiah 2, starting in verse 10, says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When they see Messiah coming on the clouds of heaven, is he coming with a smile and a lollipop? Oh, no. He's coming with a sword. First time he rode into Jerusalem, it was on a donkey. He was coming in peace. When a king comes riding a horse, he's coming for war. Verse 11, the lofty looks of man shall be humble. The word lofty means proud, arrogant. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Before the Lord returns for the battle of Armageddon, who has been the man that the world worshipped and looked up to and bowed down to? The false Messiah. 
What's going to happen to the false Messiah when Messiah returns? He's going to die, be resurrected, and cast in the lake of fire. He's not going to be haughty anymore. Verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts. So the day of the Lord here is expanded. It's the day of the Lord of hosts. It's that final end times judgment when Messiah returns with the armies of heaven. How many of you want to be in that army? Yes, you and me too. Shall come upon everything proud and lofty. How many times your preachers say the tribulation period is so God can punish those bad old Jews? There's nothing further from the truth. The day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Upon everything lifted up it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up and upon all the oaks of Bashan. Talking about the nations of the world. The trees represent their kings, their thrones. What does Satan do in Revelation 16? He sends out the evil spirits like frogs to bring all the kings down to the battle of Armageddon. Verse 14, upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up, those are the kingdoms, great and small, that Isaiah 2 earlier said Messiah's kingdom is going to reign over. Verse 15, upon every high tower, what kind of a tower? What's a migdal? It's a military tower, right? A protection tower, a tower of defense. And upon every fortified wall, how many of those fortifications are going to stand up to the Lord when he returns? None. Upon all the ships at Tarshish and upon all the beautiful sloops. Boy, that's in Revelation 2, isn't it? Yep, all the shipping's going to get disrupted. The loftiness of man, his arrogance, his pride, his haughtiness shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day with the idols. He shall utterly abolish. What's the word utterly? Completely, yep. Go to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. Isaiah writes a lot about the day of the Lord. Starting in verse 6. Anybody know what the word wail means? Bitterly cry, not just a little weep, right? Bitterly cry, wail for the day of the Lord's at hand. Doesn't that sound like Zechariah 14, when the day of the Lord's at hand? Yeah. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, and every man's heart will melt. What's that mean? Terrified. Terrified, scared to death. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They'll be in pain as a woman in childbirth. How many times is the tribulation period described as being like a woman in childbirth? Give me one, just one. Matthew 24, Odin, birth pains. That the first four seals as they're open, that's the beginning of the birth pains. Give me another in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, okay will come like that. When people say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction like a woman in childbirth. Yeah. They'll be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Why will they be amazed? 
How scared are you? They've been following the false messiah. They've been calling him God. And now they're going, uh-oh. We were wrong. Can they then change their mind? Can they take off that mark of the beast? Oh no, it's too late. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its what from it? Its sinners. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and is going forth and the moon will not cause his light to shine. That's in the book of Joel. That's in Matthew 24. I will punish who for its evil? The world. Not Israel. The world. And the wicked for their iniquity. Iniquity means what? Lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Messiah on Judgment Day says, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. It's not just two-thirds of the children of Israel that perish. What about the Gentile nations? It's more like three-fourths. So if you look at the world today, just roughly eight billion people, we're talking about what, over six billion people are going to die. Do you see why blood is up to the horse's bridles for 200 miles? Verse 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. Is that a little earthquake? No. What does it say in Ezekiel? That the earthquake in the Golan Heights will be felt here in the United States. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. What's he so angry at? The sin. The sin, the idolatry. God has given the people seven years of the tribulation period to realize they're sinners and need to repent. And by Revelation 16, those that are left are shaking their fists in God's face saying, we know it's you and we hate you. And they refuse to repent. Go to Joel chapter 1. God writes about the day of the Lord all over the scriptures. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Alas is kind of an old-fashioned Englishy term. What does alas mean? Pay attention. It's a little more than that, isn't it? It's more like, whoa. Yes. It's like something really bad's coming. Alas for the day. What day? For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here it is. Blow the trumpet in Zion. A sound and alarm in my holy mountain. What day is that? That's the day of the Lord, but it's also the Feast of Trumpets. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. 
Many people think that the tribulation period starts with the rapture, but it doesn't. It's actually a little bit after. It starts with the confirmation of that seven-year treaty. And there's going to be a few days between the rapture and resurrection and the confirmation of that treaty. Because what happens when the rapture and resurrection takes place? How's the world going to view it? Are they going to go, hey, hey, cool? Or are they going to be terrified? Are they going to look for a leader? Yeah. And they're going to pick the wrong one. It says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it's at hand. Why would they tremble? Isn't it a nice peaceful time? No, it's terrible. It's horrifying. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong. Does great mean they're really nice guys? No, it means a very great army. Very big in number. The like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. But what does that mean? When does that take place? Ah, think back. When they see the abomination and desolation, what are they supposed to do? Flee to Petra. What happens for those who say, no, I'm not going, I'm staying here? That's verse 3. Surely nothing shall escape. They're not escaping. They had their opportunity when they refused to obey God at that point. When Messiah told them to go and they refuse and the false messiah takes his seat in Jerusalem. It's too late to run then. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds so they run. With the noise like chariots over the mountains they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. The forces of the false messiah are doing great destruction across the world. And nothing, it seems, is going to stop them until what? Well, wait till we get back to Zechariah 14. You'll see what happens. You're right, it's coming. Oh, let's see. Verse 8. They do not push one another. Each one marches in his own column. So they're very disciplined. Though they lunge between the weapons, they're not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. What are they doing? They're destroying everything in their path, house by house, people by people. For since the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon go dark. Oh, we just read about that. The stars diminish their brightness. Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great. Who can endure it? Skip up to verse 30. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Do you think that ends the discussion here in Joel of the day of the Lord? No. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time. In those days is the last 2,000 years up to the day of the Lord. At that time is the tribulation period. So some of the things in Joel 3 have already been taking place. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, that means there should be Jewish people coming back into Israel, reestablishing the nation of Israel and retaking the city of Jerusalem. Has that happened? Yes, that's in those days. Verse 2, I'll also gather all nations. Now this is at that time, the tribulation period. Bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means the Lord judges. The Lord judges. What is the Lord going to judge? Sin, right? Yeah. Now I'll enter into judgment with their on account of my people, my heritage, Israel. Ooh. They've gone too far. They're going to destroy Israel. And the Lord says, oh no, you're not. How do you think the Lord knows they won't get it done? We'll get back to chapter 14. Look at it in a minute. On account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they scattered among the nations. They've also divided up what? My land. Boy, it's a good thing that nations today are not trying to divide Israel. Wouldn't you hate to be living in one of those nations pushing Israel to divide the land in the capital of Jerusalem? Yep, yep, we're going to be in trouble one of these days. Go down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning spears and pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say I'm strong. Assemble and come all you nations. For which battle do all nations come? Armageddon. And gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Again, the Lord judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. What do we call that judgment, by the way? It's in Matthew 25. The sheep and goats judgment. Which nations survive? The sheep or the goats? The sheep, what happens to the goats? They go into eternal fire. Uh-oh. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. That's Zechariah chapter 4. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 14. Put in a sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Let's go to Revelation 14 and see that. Revelation chapter 14. 
oddly enough, that's the chapter that has verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. But that's not why we came. Look at verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Who's that? Messiah Yeshua. Having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice. He who sat in the cloud saying what? Thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The significance of that, think back to the parable of wheat and tares. Which was going to be cut down first? The tares were going to be cut down and cast in the fire, then the wheat to be gathered in the barn. So the reaping that's going on here are the tares. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him with a sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. See, I told you it was the tares, not the wheat. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, which is 200 miles. How long is Israel from the north to the south? 200 miles. That's a lot of people dying. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 14. Still in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil or booty or plunder will be divided in your midst. Let's go to Amos chapter 5. God talks about this in Amos. Why do so many of his prophets talk about the day of the Lord? Because he wants people to be saved. I've had people tell me many times, Wayne, you cannot talk about hell. You'll scare people into getting saved. I don't care how they get saved. I just want them to get saved. Amos chapter 5. Starting verse 16. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets. And they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You hear a lot of people say, I don't want to go on the rapture. I want to be here in the tribulation period so I can witness to people. This says, oh no, you don't want to be here. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. I mean what? Going from bad to worse. Or as though he went into one house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is, it not the day of, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? It is, not, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? 
Go to Obadiah. Chapter 1. Yeah, I know there's only one chapter. No, there's not. Every verse is its own chapter. I'm yanking your chain. Verse 15. Let me give you a chance to find it because it really is very short. It's just a page and a half in my Bible. Obadiah wasn't Jewish. Obadiah is from Edom. He's a descendant of Esau. He served in the northern king of Israel. He served Ahab and Jezebel. But he protected the prophets of God. Therefore, they called his name Obadiah, which is the servant of the Lord. And God gave him this prophecy, they say, as a result of his faithfulness to God. In verse 15 to 17, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. Upon which part of the nations? All the nations. When you hear preachers say the tribulation period is just so God can punish the Jews, you go, oh no, it's not. As you have done, it shall be done to you. We call that what? The Haman principle? Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. That means they're coming to wipe out the nation of Israel completely. What's going to happen to their nations? They're going to get wiped out. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continue, lest they shall drink and swallow. But what are they drinking? The wrath of Almighty God. And they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. House of Jacob shall possess their possessions, for the Lord will deliver Israel. Go to Zephaniah. Oh, we rarely get to go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah is the book that says in the kingdom we're all going to be speaking Hebrew, so you may as well start studying now. Zephaniah chapter 1. Comes right after, have a cookie. Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly, meaning when it starts, boy, it moves quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. Cry out how? In fear, right? That day is the day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm. Remember Joel 2? Against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because. Because why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust. And their flesh like refuge. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. Talking about what? Their idols. They're going to pray to their idols and say, Deliver us from the Lord. And 
What are those idols going to say? Nothing at all. In the day of the Lord's wrath. That's the tribulation. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. On to Malachi. You kidding me? Another prophet? Malachi. God sends prophet after prophet. Malachi chapter 4. The whole chapter. Is about the coming of the Lord. For behold the day is coming. Burning like an oven. Do they mean like an oven that you cook in? Or an oven like they cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in? Yeah, that's the kind of oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly shall be stubble. What happens to stubble in a fire? It's burned up quickly. And the day, what day? Day of the Lord, which is coming, shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that I will leave them neither root nor branch. That is no ancestor, no descendant. What happens to the wicked? They shall perish. Verse 2, but to you who fear my name. Okay, you're not the wicked. This is the other side now. Do you fear my name? The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Oh my goodness, Messiah is a bird. No. The word they translated as wings is kanafim. And it's talking about the corners of the talit where the tzitzit are tied, um, representing the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Remember the one with the issue of blood? She crawls through the crowd and grabs the hem, quote-unquote, of his garment. She's actually grabbing the tzitzit because of this phrase. And that's why he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. People read that and go, what faith? She crawls through the crowd and grabs his robe. How's that faith? She's saying, you are this Messiah, the son of righteousness that arises with healings in his conifim. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. So while the evil, the wicked are being destroyed, the righteous are going to be blessed and protected. You shall trample the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. But now it shifts gears. Something has to happen before the day of the Lord. For there to be the righteous. And what is that? That's the coming of Messiah. So verse 4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. What does that have to do with the righteous versus the wicked? That's God's standard of righteousness, always was. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. And Messiah's first coming, who fulfilled that role? John the Baptist. What about his second coming? Who's going to fulfill that role? The two witnesses, one of which is Elijah and the other is Moses. People go, how can that be? I'll turn to Matthew chapter 17. The Lord tells us. 
Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, have a vision of the second coming. Chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now after six days, well, if a day's a thousand years, that's after 6,000 years. What comes after 6,000 years? The day of the Lord, the 7,000th, yep. And after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. If it mattered which mountain, the Lord would have told us. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. That's exactly the way Messiah is described in Ezekiel chapter 43 as his return. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Why Moses and Elijah? Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Who testifies to Messiah the law and the prophets. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Peter quotes from Joel. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. You remember not too long ago we had the blood moons, right? And the, and the solar eclipses, the sun was turning into darkness, and the moon into blood. People said, the day of the Lord, it started. What does this say? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, there are signs to get ready. To get ready. Nothing said that the day of the Lord was going to start when we saw those blood moons and the eclipses. Are there more eclipses and blood moons coming? There are. What are they signs of? It's getting close. Be ready. Has anybody seen anything in the news lately that made them think the day of the Lord's coming? If not, you're not watching the news, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We mentioned it a few minutes ago. Time to bring it out into the open. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, what do the times and the seasons mean? The feasts and the festivals of Leviticus 23 that teach the first and second coming of the Lord. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. How many preachers have I heard read that verse and say that's because they were relevant to the church? That's not why. It's because they're celebrating them year in and year out. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says, let us keep the feast? What feast is he talking about? Passover. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. How many of you, when you start talking in times prophecy, people give you that verse? The day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, so therefore we can know nothing about it, therefore it's not worth studying. That's not what this means. When they say peace and safety, why would they say peace and safety? What's happened? A seven-year treaty of peace, right? Confirmed by the false Messiah. Israel can lay down its arms finally. Then sudden destruction, that's the Psalm 83 war. 
comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So at this day shall overtake you as a thief, which means what? If you understand Leviticus 23 and the appointed times of the Lord, you know what's coming. You're not going to get caught off guard. Not going to get caught by surprise. Then on to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, which still makes me sad. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But, just that little word. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And you think, with all that's going on in this world, how can the world be caught off guard by Messiah's coming? There's scoffers, there's false teachers. What percentage of the people in the United States study their Bibles carefully on a regular basis? A very small percentage. Yeah, yeah. Again, we hear lots and lots. I don't need to read it. My pastor reads it. He'll tell me what I need to know. <laughs> At the time of the end, there's strong delusions. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which means what? They'll believe anything that comes along. Anything that keeps them from having to repent. Anything that lets them continue in their sin. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. He's going to intervene twice personally in this world. What's the first time? At Gog and Magog. Second time at the Battle of Armageddon. Huh. Let's look first at Ezekiel 38 and see how the Lord intervenes personally. Ezekiel 38, beginning in verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time, at the same time refers to in that day, during the tribulation period, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For my jealousy and the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men are on the face of the earth, shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I'll bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I'll rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. I'll be known in the eyes of many nations. 
then they shall know that I am the Lord. In Revelation 19, we're going to hold for a minute, so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 23 to answer the question, why does the Lord choose that point to intervene at the battle of Armageddon? Why? Why does he intervene? Matthew 23. Why is it important that Israel has gotten saved before the battle of Armageddon? Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. As in gathers her chicks on her wings, but you were not willing. Verse 37 is eye-opening. Who sent the prophets? Messiah did. did. But he hadn't been born yet. He's been from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. That word house in Hebrew can refer to your personal dwelling, synagogue, or the temple. Which is this referring to? The temple. For I say to you, shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So turn back to Zechariah 14, verse 3. What has happened? They have called out for Messiah to come. And what happens when the people call out for Messiah to return? He's coming. And is he coming to play tiddlywinks? Then the Lord will go forth as he fights against those nations. Which nations? It said in verse 2, all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. In Psalm 2, they're coming to keep Messiah from returning. And he says, well, nice, nice try. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Verse 4, and in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. A lot of people don't understand that verse today. The Mount of Olives is in Jerusalem. Well, it is now, but it wasn't back then. Back then, it was across the river. What's, which valley? The Kidron Valley. Why do I call it a river? When it's raining, it's a river. Otherwise, it's dry. But It was across the Kidron Valley, otherwise called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. We talked about that over and over. There's a Muslim graveyard in front of the eastern gate. Is Messiah going to walk through a graveyard and make himself unclean? No. So what happens to the graveyard? Half of it goes north, half of it goes south. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9. When Messiah ascended to heaven, where did he ascend from? Mount of Olives. So where does he return to? Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Yeshua who was taken up from into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He went from the Mount of Olives with the clouds. He returns to Mount of Olives 
with the clouds, right? As you saw him go, so he's coming back. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 14. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. Wait a minute. Why would they want to flee from Jerusalem? Who is in charge of Jerusalem till Messiah defeats him in the battle of Armageddon? False Messiah, those who didn't flee before haven't been able to go. But now they can flee. Messiah is made away. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Let me just read to you a minute about that earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. The article says, In the excavations of the Israeli Antiquities Authority in the city of David National Park, archaeological evidence has been uncovered of the earthquake that occurred during the kingdom of Judah that's mentioned in the Bible. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah, Zechariah 14.5. The famous earthquake which occurred in Israel about 2,800 years ago appears in the Bible and was previously exposed in several sites throughout Israel. Researchers believe that for the first time they were able to identify remnants of destruction indicating the earthquake also hit Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. So they had evidence in other parts of Judah, but now they found it in Jerusalem them in itself. So it says archaeological excavations by the Israel Antiquities Authority in the city of David National Park revealed a layer of destruction, including a row of shattered vessels, including bowls, lamps, cooking utensils, storage and storage jars, which were smashed as the building's walls collapsed. According to the researchers, since no signs of fire were found, this was not a deliberate event, and the reason for the collapse of the building is the earthquake that occurred in Israel during the 8th century BCE, during the period of the kingdom of Judah. The more archaeologists dig, you know what they find? That the Bible is true. Have you seen the YouTube video that's been going around about the excavations in Nineveh? They have found... In Nineveh, in the king's palace, a picture on the wall of Sennacherib sitting on his throne having just defeated another nation. And in the writing on the wall, it talks about Sennacherib has just defeated Lachish down in the kingdom of Judah. Normally, you would see something like that when the capital's been defeated. But you know what? Sennacherib couldn't defeat Jerusalem. So they wrote about his defeat of Lachish, which is several miles from Jerusalem. Another indication that the Bible is true. Not that we doubted it, right? Okay, go back to Zechariah 14, verse 5. It ends with, then the Lord my God will come. That's Messiah Yeshua called the Lord my God. Is this the first time he's called God? No, it's not. And all the saints with you... Who are the saints? Are those the angels? No. 
Revelation 14, verse 12, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua are returning with Messiah. In Revelation 19, 11. Go to Amos chapter 1, verse 1. To see that earthquake as it's described in the Bible. I mean, it talks about it here, but in Amos chapter 1, it's where we find the first reference. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Time's really running. Okay. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, Tekoa is near Jerusalem, right? Which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's the earthquake we're talking about. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So Matthew mentions the holy angels coming with him, but doesn't mention the saints. Hmm. What does the word angel mean? Messenger. 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 Hmm. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you want to be in the sheep or the goats? Do you want to be in the sheep? The sheep hear my voice. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Starting in verse 11. First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11 is written by the apostle Paul. Who received his theology from whom? From Messiah himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah with all his saints. Okay, so that confirms Zechariah 14.5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. 
and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So who's coming with Messiah? Is it the saints or the angels? The answer is yes. We're all coming. Who doesn't want to be with Messiah? We're all coming. Go to the book of Jude. And I won't make any jokes about chapter 1. There's only one. Jude is right before Revelation. Jude verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Again, confirming Zechariah 14.5. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many times does ungodly appear in that verse? Four times, right? Yeah, yeah. The ungodly are in big trouble when Messiah returns. Dirty goats. Back to Zechariah 14 to verse 6. It shall come to pass in that day. Just write these references down in your notes because we've already looked at them. Isaiah 13 verses 9 to 11. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And verse 10 and verse 31. And Matthew 24, 29, which we didn't look at, but would say the same thing. And Revelation 8, 12. Now, to Zechariah 14, verse 7. After in verse 6, shall come to pass that day, there'll be no light, the lights will diminish. Verse 7 is what I want you to concentrate on. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. There's a lot of teaching out there that God hasn't decided yet when Messiah is going to return. Is that what this says? No, it was known to the Lord in the days of Zechariah. How long has it been known to the Lord? Forever. From the beginning, from the time of creation. Shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. My Jewish sages in my Tanakh say that light refers to the light of salvation. That it refers to the time that all Israel shall be saved. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. That is the light of Messiah coming that we're reading about in Zechariah 14, 7. Revelation 21, verses 23 to 25. It says, the city, had, the city is the new Jerusalem, which has come down out of heaven. Had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There will be no night there. 
Some people say, that means there won't be a sun or moon. Oh, there will be a sun and a moon. It's just Messiah is going to outshine them all. And in Revelation 22, verse 5, it reminds us that there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. And as much as I was confident that we would finish Zechariah 14 today, I'm afraid we will have to finish it next week, Lord willing, as we pick up in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8.